1: I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ highlights just how important research collections can be. Research collections are an amazing thing. They are to bones, shells and feathers what books are to a library, and they're irreplaceable books that can be hundreds or even millions of years old, and they can end up providing information in unexpected ways. DNA from fossil bones has been shedding some new light on the prehistory and early human history of New Zealand. To date, much of what we know about the species that used to live here and how they've been affected by 750 years of human settlement comes from well-preserved fossil bones. But zoologists collecting from prehistoric sites and archaeologists working in Māori middens always collect and keep everything, big and small, and it's those small bits and pieces that are turning out to be surprisingly valuable. I'm off to the University of Otago to meet ancient DNA specialist Nick Rawlins and archaeologist Richard Walter. We're in the advanced laboratory in the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology, and Richard tells me what normally happens here. What happens is
2: we come back from the field with bags and bags of archaeological material. We tip it all out on these desks and then we sort everything. So we take out the shell, we take out the bone, then the bone we sort it out into mammal bone, bird bone, fish bone. Then once we've done that, we take all those fragments and we sort them out to element. So with the fish, we take out the dentaries, the maxillas, the premaxillas, the parasphenoids, etc., and then we go onto these all of these um, shelves that you can see behind you. These little drawers and boxes, and then we pull open the drawers and we match them. For example, if I have a, a bone, um, a fish bone, say from here, and it's a um, premaxilla, and I can take it over here, and you see all of these are premaxillas all along here. So you'd pull out the drawers? So I'd pull out the drawer and I'd find the premaxilla that matches. And that's the right a left premaxilla of a soldier fish from uh, the Cook Islands.
1: So traditionally that's what you've done? Yeah. And the technology is changing?
2: The technology is changing, that's right. It's becoming simpler and it's becoming cheaper.
1: So enter Nick, yep. where your interest is in the DNA that these artefacts might contain
3: yeah so my job here my research here is I reconstruct what New Zealand used to be like when Polynesians arrived and look at the impacts that they had how their behaviours and diet changed over time and then take that information for smart conservation or smart restoration of um, how to conserve what we've got left
1: great well let's have a look you've pulled some things up for me to have a look at on the table Um, talk me through what we've got there Richard
2: OK, this is an archaeological site that we excavated in the Bay of Islands about a year and a half ago. Now, all of the material has been sorted and all of the identifiable material has been taken out, and what we have left are these big bags, these trays full of tiny little unidentifiable fragments. Now, normally when we're excavating a midden site and we pull out the bones, this is, this is food remains, of course... About 90% of the material is fragmented, smashed up, and unidentifiable. At least it was. But now, you kept it anyway? We keep, oh, yeah, we, <laughs> we don't throw anything away. We, we wash, we store, we label everything properly, and we keep everything, just in case something can happen in the future. For example, in the 1970s, we excavated the nests from mowers, okay, and they, basically they contained mower shit. So this is, of course, exactly the sort of stuff that Nick loves.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this is a treasure chest. So I look at that and I see rubble. I can see something that might be a bit of a bone. There's nothing there that's really identifying itself to me. No,
2: there are, well, I, can, I, I can see elements in here. I can see vertebrae, I can see bits and pieces of fin bones from, from fish, and I can see some crab bits and pieces. But I can't tell you what species they are not by looking at them, not by comparing them to our reference collections.
1: Okay, so they remain, for you, unidentifiable. When you look at that, what do you see, Nick?
3: I see a genetic treasure chest. We can go, well, we know there's fish there, some of it like the um, fragments we've got from an early Maori site, Awamoa, just south of Omaru. We can't tell. I suspect there's bits of marine mammal in there, but a lot of it's burnt, it's just unidentifiable bits of bone. But what we can go and do now is we can take two, three hundred random pieces of this bone, we can grind it up into um, just a pile of bone powder, extract the DNA out of it so we get this DNA soup, and then using the same environmental DNA technology that Neil gimmel is using to characterise Watson Loch Ness as we can photocopy up a genetic barcode that will identify all of the animals in this pile of fragments and then we can take that sequence, compare it against databases and basically provide all of this detail and nuance to the picture of prehistoric New Zealand. So when we've just had identifiable bones, like this mower femur from a heavy-footed mower...
1: Which is a very big, chunky bone, I very have Very big, say. chunky
3: bone. They they preserve well. It, it's like a paint-by-numbers version of the Sistine Chapel ceiling that's not coloured in. We've got the broad picture, but we're lacking all the details. And all of the genetic signatures and details we get from these tracer of fragments actually start bringing in all of those details and make the picture what you actually see today.
1: Now, can you just explain eDNA a bit more for me? So Neil Gemmell is looking, supposedly, for the Loch Ness monster. What he's doing is he's not expecting to find one, but he's going to go in. what, essentially take some water out of Loch Ness and see what's left traces of DNA in yeah here?
3: So with Loch Ness, you're trying to extract all the DNA out of water samples, and most of the DNA will be made up of detritus, faeces, poos, weaves from all the animals that live in the lake. In this case, we're wanting to get all the DNA from all of the bone fragments. And so we have these genetic barcodes that are very, very variable across lots and lots of different um, species of animals, and when we compare them to databases, we can actually start pinpointing what we are finding. But our identifications are only as good as the database. So in quite a few examples, we've come up with, well, we think it's an eagle, but we don't have a Haas-Eagle extract, so we've gone and got a Haas-Eagle extract, or we think we've found the first ancient DNA sequences of New Zealand's extinct frog, so we have to go get an extinct frog bone, extract DNA, and then put that into the database so we can start matching up.
1: So in this recent study you've done, which is very exciting, we'll get to it a bit more, you've got some samples... Mm. From archaeological yeah. sites and then some that predate humans arriving in New yeah. Zealand.
3: Yeah, so we've got samples spanning 20,000 years of New Zealand history, mixture of pre-human sites, mostly cave sites, sand dune sites, and then we've got what we call frag bags, these, these trays of fragments from a mixture of early Māori and late Māori um, archaeological middens. And what did you find? Quite a few surprising things, actually. We've got... The first ancient DNA sequences of New Zealand's lost frogs, the extinct Markham's frog that's showing a lot of geographic structure across New Zealand and cryptic species that we're investigating further. Kākāpō was one of the big surprises. We know Kākāpō's in all of these fossil sites, but we'd never actually found Kākāpō and Kea and Midden deposits before.
2: They may have been hunted for the feathers, but we don't usually find the bones in the archaeological sites. And there's other species, too, that we're finding in the midden sites that we, we're not normally finding um, just through the normal archaeozoological methods. For example, eel is showing up. Now, we know that people ate eel across the country. It was a very important food source in historic period, as it is today. But we almost never find eel in archaeological sites because it's so fragile. So it's really nice to be picking this up. Um, other ones, of course, are whale you wouldn't expect to find whale in middens because people don't drag the bones around. If whales are stranded on the beach, they'll be taking the meat off. But we're giving whale DNA in the sites. Now, we don't know if this is coming in in bone or if it's actually coming in through the meat itself. When discard into the midden, the DNA is permeating the other substrates.
1: What species of whale did you find?
3: Southern right whale, pygmy, fin whale, cuviers beaked whale, killer whale... Dolphins and other research we're doing on uh, cetacean whale-dolphin resource use by Māori. We're finding um, fin whale, um, strap tooth beaked whale, and we've actually now got the first um, record of a pilot whale, which is this really interesting thing, is if you go to the archaeological record, pilot whale is has been identified, in quotation marks, throughout the record. Yeah, and it's quite common. And we've never found results. it in these frag bags. And we've now got one record from Washpool Midden. And so it's looking like the identifications that have been done have been purely based on size, and that if you're large, you're a whale. If you're small, you're a dolphin, even if you are a whale. So we've, we've got bones that have been identified as dolphin, and they've come up as a beet whale. But we also are beginning to think that a lot of the identifications are based on people's preconceptions of what strains today. So if you're a medium-sized whale, you can't identify, be identified as anything else, then you're a, a pilot whale.
1: Were there other marine mammals in the record as well?
3: We've always known there's fur seals, the, what we're calling the true New Zealand sea lion, the prehistoric lineage in the record, um, elephant seals, but it was always thought that fur seals were always more important in the diet than sea lions and elephant seals and what the bone grab is showing us is actually you are finding elephant seals and sea lions in same proportion same abundances the first seal is suggesting they're as important as each other in the diet.
2: That's possible Nick but the The problem is, and this is one that we're all well aware of, is that the difference between doing this methodology and the traditional methodology is that the traditional methodology, you can actually do quantification and you can make very, very clear um, assumptions about the relative proportion of things in the diet. And that's because we can eliminate doubles. If if you have a, a dead seal and you have, say, 30 bones, we can um, eliminate the possibility of counting that as 30 seals. But you can't do that with the DNA. So twice as much seal DNA as sea lion DNA doesn't mean twice as much seal.
1: So what does this add to our picture of how we understand the native fauna of New Zealand responded to human settlement. So the first people rocked up about 750 years ago. We've always thought they had an impact. Does this change our understanding of what we think that impact was?
2: Well, I think some of the work that Nick and the zoology team have been doing is is clearer on this. I mean, what we see archaeologically, we see a much bigger picture. We're not seeing the fine detail. What um, Nick's team is doing is they're, they're able to tell us that certain subspecies are being moved around in different ways and being replaced by other species or subspecies. What we see is a very sudden impact on, the, on a certain range of faunas. You know, Within about 100 years there's been huge depression of faunas across New Zealand particularly visible in the south where we have the large moa hunting sites sea lions, the seals moa etc and a number of the forest and seabirds, next team is able to using the DNA get a much finer-grained look at that picture.
3: One of the things we have found with the bone grabbers, there are ten lineages of kakapo in New Zealand when Polynesians arrived. There was a North Island kakapo that's genetically distinct to the South Island kakapo. We don't know whether that's a different species or a different subspecies. We need to do more work, but. What we see is a large loss in genetic diversity in Kākāpō when uh, Polynesians arrive. The North Island Kākāpō goes extinct, the South Island Kākāpō gets hammered, and then it's hit by the double whammy with Europeans turning up. And so what you've gone is from about 10 lineages down to one. So you've gone from the equivalent of the genetic variation of Dunedin to the variation of the English royal family, completely inbred.
2: And this is really interesting because that's precisely the sort of thing that the archaeologists wouldn't pick up. We cannot pick up that very, very fine detail.
1: What other extinct species were you finding? You've mentioned a frog. Uh, You've talked about a North Island lineage of kākāpō. What else did you find?
3: So we've found tuatara. We've got skinks and geckos. With the birds, we're picking up a lot of the small birds that don't preserve in the sites like us. Um, small perching birds. One of the cool things um, with the fish we're finding out that Maori fished locally so the local fish and chip shop was quite important. Uh, much like the fish and chip shop they have in Ravensbourne here, sources all of its fish locally, you, you wouldn't go down the road to the other town um, to their fish and chip shop. We're also picking up shark and with the eels that Richard was talking about before, not only are we picking up The freshwater species, but we're actually picking up marine species as well.
2: Here's the picture we get from the archaeological record. In New Zealand, if you're down here in the south and you're looking at a midden assemblage, 99% of what you get is going to be red cod and barracuda, because red cod and barracuda are everywhere. It doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter how good you are at fishing, you can always get red cod and barracuda. So if you pick up a handful of midden from any site on the east coast of the South Island, it's going to be mostly red cod and barracuda. But there is going to be a very small proportion of other stuff, and that's that stuff that's that's going to tell us the really important picture. Now we can pick up, we're, we're getting a lot better at the way in which we identify bones now. We can uh, identify many, many more bones and many more elements now than we could in the past. But with the this DNA uh, method, we're picking up that the stuff that's really different. And that's telling us about this really subtle local differences that Nick was talking about. You can go to any fish and chip shop in New Zealand and get lemon fish, right, battered, but you really have to go to Ravensbourne to get that high-quality blue cod. And so we're picking up that local twist, you know?
1: Now, you talked before about having to have a known DNA sequence to match against. I'm wondering how many unmatchable DNA sequences you might have ended up with that could be entirely new things?
3: We have quite a few. One of the things that we've got is an unknown crane. Now we don't have cranes in New Zealand but the, the DNA sequence that of the, the unknown crane that we got from um, these frag bags, that is the best match we could find on the database and so it doesn't mean it's a crane. One of the things we're finding is that all the research that we're doing and um, other ancient DNA labs are doing is we're starting to get DNA sequences from all of the New Zealand b- uh, birds, um, the extinct ones that haven't haven't been sequenced and so you could take the data that we've produced in this study and in five, ten years time compare it to the database again and you'd start filling in even more and more details.
2: I really think that our teams have to work much more closely mm-hmm. together in the future I think there's huge opportunities mm-hmm. if we understand each other's Research directions, paradigms, a bit more closely. I think we've got all sorts of directions we can move in.
3: Ancient DNA is but one tool in the toolbox that we use to reconstruct New Zealand what it used to be like, and. If you do any of these one tools in isolation, you're not going to get the whole picture. And the prime example I can think of is work we did on the Chatham Island sea line where we did the ancient DNA on the bones, then we used the the genetic variation we found to reconstruct population size, and then we could do some modelling that, based on this population size of sea lines, the known extinction window, estimates of human population growth, we could work out how many sea lines would you have to hunt to cause the extinction of them And it turns out it's very little, it's about half a sea lion Per person per year Now when you take that into account And then go with archaeologists To look at the bones that have been Found in the midden deposits, you find The entire size range from small pups To the females and the giant, uh, giant Males, but you don't find Many individuals at all yeah. And it's, you yeah. don't, it shows you don't actually Need to hunt that many individuals To yeah. cause extinctions, but it it's also the DNA's matching what we find in the archaeological record.
2: That's fascinating, Mm. because if you take the New Zealand archaeological sequence, you know, if you look at the archaeological record of New Zealand, East Coast, South Island again especially, and you didn't know anything about New Zealand, you would know that there was a major extinction event here, and that was the extinction of moas. But if you look at the sea mammal record, you wouldn't have a clue. There is nothing in the archaeology that suggests Māori were predating sea lion or seals, fur seals, at anything other than a very low rate. Yet we know that they were wiped out across much of the country or or um, extirpated anyway. You, we, just, you just can't pick yeah. that up from the archaeology. We only know it because there's no seals here now.
3: Yeah, yeah. And we, we find it with uh, the marine mammals and we find it with a lot of the birds like the black swan um, is that a lot of New Zealand birds, um, if I use the black swan, uh, the powa as an example, is they're, they're large, they're slow breeding, what we call case-selected, they take a long time to re- get to maturity. And you won't find many individuals in, in middens, but across the Chatham Islands, across mainland New Zealand, is that they all go extinct at a time of stable climate. So we, we know the extinctions have to be down to humans. And the research we're doing time and time again has just shown All you have to do is hunt enough that your mortality um, basically outweighs your replacement or reproduction. As soon as that happens, um, you're going to go into an extinction vortex.
2: And that's right. And with Moa, we know that, but we don't actually know, coming back to the archaeological side, we don't actually know how humans did that. We don't know physically how people hunted moa in New Zealand. We know they had a massive impact on them, but there's nothing in the archaeology so far that's telling us how they did it. There's no um, tools for hunting mowa. There There's no e- evidence anywhere that dogs were used. There was no evidence in New Zealand for mass killing. This is a research that I'm involved in at the moment. It's just taking those dynamics that Nick's talking about, those population dynamics, and trying to turn it into human
1: behaviour. How did Māori send Māori extinct? It's not simple. Thanks, Richard. That's Richard Walter from the Department of Anthropology and Archaeology at the University of Otago. And we also heard from Nick Rawlins, who is in the Zoology Department. I'm Alison Balance and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 26th of July 2018. Our webpage at rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World is full of audio photos and useful links. You can sign up for our weekly email newsletter there too and find our contact details. You can listen to us on the RNZ app and subscribe to us as a podcast in all the usual places, including Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, and Apple Podcasts. We also post links to all our stories on Twitter and Facebook, where we are RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. Bye for now. Namahi. Botox Cosmetic, Ata Botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic
3: is right for you.